Thanks for joining us on Battle Walks as we walk across the great battlefields of Europe. If you're enjoying the show, why not become a member? Every week, you'll receive exclusive bonus episodes available only to subscribers, and you can listen to all our episodes completely ad-free. Click on the link in the show notes to join us via ACAST+. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A Living History Production. I'm Matt McLaughlin. And I'm Pete Smith. We're battlefield historians who love nothing better than getting out and walking the ground where great battles in history took place. And now we'd like you to come with us. Every week, Battle Walks will take you to one of the great battlefields of Europe. As we walk the ground, we'll dig through the pages of history, we'll uncover the secrets of the battlefields, and most importantly, we'll tell the stories of the people who fought and died there. Welcome to Battle Walks. Hello and welcome to Battle Walks, where we are walking the great battlefields, well, not just of Europe, but of the world. Pete Smith, my co-host, is still off leading tours, so once again, I'm joined by a special guest host to carry on the amazing work we did last week on walking the Kokoda track. So, welcome back, David Howell. Good to be here, man. Mate, I really appreciated the work we did last time. It was an incredibly popular episode, so if you're listening to this and you haven't listened to our previous episode go back and do so because it was pretty special walking the first part of the Kokoda track. And I also want to say that after that, David and I recorded a special subscriber-only episode about the gear and the equipment and the weapons that the Australians carried on the Kokoda track. So if you want to hear those special episodes, we'll be doing another one after this podcast. If you want to hear those special subscriber-only episodes, consider subscribing for a small fee every month and you can get bonus content and listen to this ad-free. So there'll be a link in the show notes uh, wherever you get your podcasts, and you can consider subscribing, which uh, which gives you lots of great extra content. But David, great to be back and carrying on on the Kokoda track. This is the second of three episodes we're going to do. Did you enjoy the experience last week, mate, of uh, of walking in a virtual sense across this ground you know so well? Oh, it was fantastic, and the good part is uh, I didn't uh, have a, a pool of sweat uh, surrounding my back where my backpack is. I was able to do it from the armchair, but no, it was great to be able to relive um walking Kokoda and to me and when I described in that I have you know I put myself I've taken myself back to New Guinea and walking along the track of the sights the sounds the smells all those sorts of things it's amazing um for, for all this flooding back in well that's the reason we do this isn't it mate I mean very occasionally I get people say to me why should I walk a battlefield it doesn't matter where we're talking about we could be talking about Anzac Cove at Gallipoli we could be talking about you know, the Great Plateau at Villas Bretno or Pozier on the Western Front, 
or indeed the Kokoda Track or any of these Pacific islands. And sometimes people just don't get it, particularly people who aren't passionate about history and military history. They don't quite understand why people would want to get out and walk the ground. Um, But it's something I always come back to, mate. It's one thing to read a book or watch a movie or a documentary or listen to a podcast like this. Those are great things. They teach you a lot. You can learn a lot about it. But there's absolutely nothing like walking the ground. And I think at a place like Kokoda, that's more important than just about anywhere else. A hundred percent. I think um, uh, the the key thing is, you're right, you can gain so much from a book, podcast, etc. But when you're on the very ground that the events took place, it is that extra, it adds that extra dimension. And with Kokoda, um, I guess that extra dimension is not just being there, but you're also going through um, a physical challenge. So when you overlap that to being on the battlefield, you have this ultimate pilgrimage where you've gone um, without uh, the niceties or the, the comforts of home. So you've deprived yourself and you're seeing where these events took place. And as I said um, before, the sights and sounds and the smells and all of that uh, combines to uh, bring the bring the history to life. Well, one of the factors that I think is really important that, that probably gets overlooked, certainly in the planning stages of a trip to the battlefields, is climate. Climate was so influential on everything that went on. I mean, battles were decided during wars based on what the weather was doing. Planning for battles took the weather into account. You know, great campaigns were delayed by weeks or months because of weather. Um, And the weather obviously had a very direct effect on the, the men who were there. Battles are obviously fought in the great outdoors, uh, and if the weather's bad, there's no sheltering from it. So when you go to Gallipoli in August and you, you know, you read about the August offensive, but then you have to climb those ridges in the heat of the summer, or you know, when you go to the Western Front in January and you imagine living in those trenches in the in the mud and the rain in the middle of a freezing winter, it uh, it, it really brings it all to life. And I think in a place like Kokoda, like New Guinea, like the Solomon Islands, where you and I have both been these tropical destinations, you, you don't get an understanding of, of, of what, a, what a foe the climate is until you get there. And, and particularly, I imagine, walking up those slopes and down into those valleys and crossing those rivers of Kokoda. Exactly. And um, like the example of Kokoda, um, you have rain. Obviously, there's rain fall is higher at different times of the year. But regardless, PNG and the Owen Stanley Ranges... Uh, gets five meters annually. The Owen Stanleys get five meters annually. Think about five that. meters. Thing, five meters of rain is the annual um, average rainfall in the Owen Stanleys, and so it will rain on most occasions. That you're, you know, on any given day, the the day itself goes through a cycle. So there's, you know, the mist as the evaporation happens in the early morning, as the as the as the moisture starts to come out of the jungle. Usually by two or three o'clock. Um, you know, to quote the old angry shot, you could set your watch by it. Uh, you really could because it starts to, sometimes it won't be as heavy as other days, but you, you will be affected by that. And, you know, that overlaps with your battlefield experience in the sense that, okay, hang on a second, the soldiers had to go through all this sort of stuff, but they too had to put up with this uh, tropical uh, cycle of weather where you get, you know, uh, relatively calm periods but you've got all the moisture in it everything's damp and it's evaporation mist lifting off you your pack or your clothing all that sort of stuff and then we go into that cycle in the in the afternoon where you know um that you're going to have to um you know have your poncho handy and 
that you'll have to try and get to camp before before it, before it rains too heavily. And uh, that's what would have been exactly like it would have been um, for the soldiers 80 years ago. How do you deal with that on a on a on a trek? Because I can imagine for people, especially us soft Westerners, used to the comfort of home, being out there in that environment must it must sap your energy and, and your morale. We know that was a problem during the war. We know that trying to keep the men motivated to fight in these atrocious conditions was uh, was extremely difficult. How do you do it as a trek leader with your platoon of hardy souls in uh, in the in the twenty first century? Well, I'm glad you raised that issue of morale because there is nothing quite like. Uh, having uh, a nice lunch in the sunshine at the base of a hill before you have to climb up it and then everyone's in high spirits because you've got some food in you and you're all happy we're going to start again you're a little rested and uh, (laughs) the heavens open up and um, you've got um, you've got to deal with uh, not just the rain falling on you but imagine what happens underfoot you start to get uh, little little streams of of water running down where it was just a, 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 a dry track before and that happens really quickly so that can make all the difference um, to your mood at any given time while you're doing a battlefield tour um, but yeah you overlap that with the idea that what would a soldier have done you know they would have gone through the thing they would have had their meal there might have been a lull in the fighting or it might be a movement and everything's, you know, they have tell a joke or whatever, and the morale's lifted up, and then the weather comes in and um, and it um, spoils that. The other thing that you should talk about too is that, yeah, PNG is a hot climate. It's uh, full of humidity and uh, it's quite warm, but there are times, especially up in the high parts where we're about to go today in this episode, where um, you will get cold when the afternoon, late afternoon comes and it gets cold. So that's another thing to impact on the morale. And uh, people uh, get grumpy. They don't want to talk to one another. And I suspect that that would have just been exactly like it would have been um, when you uh, were back there 80 years ago. You would have had highs and lows, literally, going up and down the mountains. But you're fighting a constant battle within. And this is a really important point. So you have this situation where morale affects, uh, I guess, if you were to put it into a, a, a context of fighting a battle, where it affects your fighting strength and your and your will to want to be able to do uh, hard physical tasks. And just like um, uh, in the war, where you experience that climbing up hills, you too are doing that on this particular type of battlefield tour. And it really, the weather, um, you know, going up a big hill after having a full belly of, of lunch, all those things conspire to you having a, a bad day. And the other thing might be simply that um, you didn't air your feet or you didn't dry your feet out at your lunch stop. And halfway up the hill, you start to get a hot spot form on your boot and uh, that turns into a blister and then you pay it off. You know, oh, I should have dressed it, but I didn't. And you keep walking because you're just focused on getting to the top of the hill. And it causes um, another area of, um, I guess, concern when it comes to your uh, mental well-being, your morale, your your you know whether you you want to determine to go on, and again that's part of the I think the wonderful thing about doing this type of battlefield journey is because those simple things, while we can't recreate the battle, but you know in essence you are recre- recreating in some part those trials and tribulations that our soldiers went through eighty years ago. Well, let's get cracking, mate. We've uh, we overnighted at uh, Isarava, one of the key battlefields on the track. And uh, now we're going to carry on. So where are we heading on our virtual tour after we've left Isarava? So today we are going um, from Isarava Battlefield and we're going to keep walking up on that same side of the range and passing through uh, a little village, a little hamlet called Alola. 
before dropping down and making our way to Eora Creek. And Eora Creek, of course, in this episode will be uh, the site of the biggest, uh, in fact, it was the site of the biggest fighting in the Owen Stanleys in the entire Kokoda campaign. But today, you're right, we've woken up, we've um, had our um, uh, some bananas and we've had some porridge and we've uh, got our boots on and uh, the best part of the day and I'm being sarcastic if you haven't detected it, but is putting on your shirt from the day before. Because yes, you've hung it out, but as I said earlier about the weather, um, it is going to be damp and it's going to be mingy and it's going to be all those things that you don't want, want to do in the morning. And for that first few seconds, uh, you will, I certainly do, and hasn't changed in 17 years, where you uh, grin, grin and bear it because it's an awful experience. But if you had a new shirt every day, it wouldn't take long before it gets manky and sweaty again. It'll only take an hour or so before you do that. So that's that's how we start our day, um, um, along with uh, having a look at the map and working out where we're going. So, yes, we've uh, packed up our stuff, put our packs on, put our boots, put our wet shirt on, and we're about to head up following some of the Choco field from Isarava battlefield up to um, Alola. Well, tell us a little bit about Alola. What went on there from a historic perspective and what do we see when we go through today? Well, on the approach to Alola, um, I should point out there is a, uh, a major attraction, uh, uh, if you could call it that, along the way to go and see. Now, that is the uh, place called Con's Rock. And Con's Rock was named after a 2nd 14th Battalion soldier, uh, Con Vap. He'd actually anglicised his name. His, he was of Greek descent and Vapolopoulos was the full name, but he anglicised it to just being Con, uh, Con Vap. And it's called Con's Rock, and it's very distinct because it's a flat, it's a natural rock formation, but it's quite flat. And it was this site that they say that Con, who was a medical orderly, actually uh, undertook an amputation on a wounded soldier without anaesthetic. And um, uh, and it's quite a, um, it's quite a, uh, a, 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 I guess, a sombre place when you go there. It's also got a little uh, mem- a memorial plaque there to the uh, Bissett brothers, in particular Butch Bissett, who uh, was killed in the Battle of Isarava. And for those who are familiar with the Kokoda story, I'm sure you would have heard of the Bissett brothers. They were two uh, brothers from Victoria who were also in the 2nd 14th. They were um, Stan and Harold Butch Bissett. They were, uh, as I said, from Melbourne in the 2nd 14th Battalion. They had um, both been commissioned as officers and in the course of the, um, in the lead up to the war, uh, in fact, they had and when Stan Bissett was still alive, he was the oldest living wallaby. He was on his way to England just before the outbreak of war to play for um, uh, for Australia in rugby. And um, back to the Cons Rock, though, there's a plaque there for them. And the story goes that um, uh, Butch, who was a platoon commander, and his brother Stan, who was the intelligence officer, in the course of the battle, uh, Butch Bissett had copped machine gun rounds in his belly and he was um, uh, propped up and he asked for his men to give him grenades. Uh, he was going to take some of the Japanese out um, before um, he was going to pass out or pass away himself. He ended up living uh, longer than he thought, I guess, into the early hours of the morning. And uh, Stan Bissett continued, obviously, to do his job as the intelligence officer, but he was brought down to see his brother. And the two had been wonderful singers uh, before the war. And um, the story goes that um, that Stan sung Danny Boy to his brother Butch and... Um, um, which is amazing experience. I met Stan Bissett on numerous occasions and I had the pleasure to be in Sydney at a dinner where he got up on stage and still sung Danny Boy, which was amazing. So that site and that plaque is there next to Con's Rock. But back to Con's Rock itself, as I said, Convap 
he had uh, actually been captured in Syria because the uh, 2nd 14th Battalion, part of the Australian 7th Division, had um, fought in the Levant, in Lebanon and Syria, and he had been captured and badly wounded, I believe, but he was part of a prisoner exchange between the French Foreign Legion and the Australian uh, forces at the time. So he had a wonderful history before he even got there. And uh, as I said, he was a canister maker from Caulfield, I believe. He was attached to the 2nd 14th as a medical orderly. And we don't know who the person that he operated on. We don't know which limb, but the, the, the story goes, and it's in the battalion history, that Convap um, used this flat surface of a rock to do an amputation on one of the wounded that were making their way back from Isarava. So they're heading south to the village of Alola and to what they all, at that stage, was called the Alola Guest House. And that is where uh, the Australians had one of their, uh, I guess, rear, uh, rear posts because um, it's behind the front at the time that Isarava was going on. And as you could imagine, after the Battle of Isarava, there was a lot of wounded Australians being carried or, or in some case men who didn't wish to be carried trying to make their way along the track and get back to Alola and off to where we're going to Eora Creek. Just extraordinary, David, and this is a, an answer to a question we asked earlier about why you should walk the ground. Well, like I always say, walk the ground with someone who knows the history like you do, and it's just, just extraordinary that people who are, who are travelling with a lesser guide might walk past sites like Cons Rock without even knowing the, the significance of those stories. So, mate, just extraordinary. It's, it's an, extraordinary, uh, an extraordinary adventure we're going on through here what's what's alola like today what do you see when you get there as a, as a modern so uh, alola um uh today uh is i believe more built up than what it would have been during the war and again i think we covered this in the last episode and the fact that people in png live in a subsistence lifestyle so they have uh, their their land if you will their their customary land but they will build their huts and move around with on that within that section of of land as they cultivate crops because that's how they've always maintained their subsistence farming. So Alola today, uh, when you first get there, you are greeted um, as you come down off the main track, uh, you cross a creek. Uh, there's usually the ladies doing the wash, washing the dishes, washing clothes and the kids playing there and you cross that and you come up uh, a little grassy knoll and you're greeted with the first part of Alola, which is upper Alola, if you will. And there's a wonderful um, round house um with a with a carving or a or, or, or a face on top of it which is very distinct and it was still there when i marched there uh, marched over there in march this year but uh, when you get there you come to a new museum which has been opened only um since, since covid has been going on um by the kokoda initiative and when i say museum it's a collection of um artifacts that have been dug up from the um um surrounding areas and it's worth seeing because there are some great examples of weapon systems like Thompson submachine guns and Bren guns, bayonets, mortars, and more importantly, everyday pieces of kit left over from, from both sides, uh, helmets, uh, buttons, things like that. In fact, in the Alola Museum, it's worth seeing because there is a, um, a machine gun, which is a Japanese machine gun, off a Betty Bomber and that Betty Bomber is um, on another um, side trek uh, above Isarava, which sometimes we go to, sometimes we don't. It's a very long walk to get up there, but that weapon system is very distinct. So there's, it's worth having a look at, and there's some, as I said, um, some great examples of what's left over. If it really brings it to life, you can see that the people who have been farming have dug this stuff up, and what do they do with it? They've put it in this little museum for you to have a look at. It's great to see. We see the same thing in the Solomon Islands with the uh, the local people bringing out the, the artefacts that they've collected, and it really does help tell the story. Um, leaving Alola, we're heading for Eora, Eora Creek. 
um, one of the big battles of the uh, of the campaign. Yeah, so when you um, leave Alola, we go down to what I call uh, Alola Lower because you're starting to drop off that side. So we've been walking on one side of uh, of, a, of a range uh, within the Owen Stanleys uh, from Kokoda all the way up to Alola. So you've pretty much stayed on one side of a mountain, basically. You've been climbing, but you're on the side of it, and we're actually going to drop down out of Alola, and um, we have our first major creek crossing before climbing back up on our way to um, Eura Creek. I would say, to finish off Alola, it's when you're down on the grassy um, part of the lower, lower Alola, there's a wonderful water pipe there, a crystal clear water, which I always have, and usually you're greeted with kids, with mandarins and i really like um having a mandarin and recharging the batteries or a banana just before you drop down and you you um you're going back through uh some village gardens and some choco and you drop down and and you start to hear the the the, the river um uh really uh flowing and you as i said this is the major first major river crossing because we're crossing from one side of the mountain range onto the other and this is really the start of many river crossings, which are about to unfold as we walk the track. So it's a steep climb off on the other side. And then we're in really damp underfoot. The canopy changes a little bit. You can hear constant um, flowing of water, which is the mighty Ayura Creek, which we'll eventually get to and we'll um, cross. And in this area, it's not hard to um, imagine what it would have must have been like when those withdrawing Australians, in particular wounded Australians, you know, you get to Alola to the, the guest house or the rest house at Alola and then you have to get down the side of the mountain and then get back up the other side of the mountain and there's some extraordinary tales of men who have lost uh, limbs, uh, men who are, um, you know, uh, can't hardly see, they've got bandages, they've been uh, days wounded, the men coming down at night. Uh, one of the things you see in the villages, including Alola, and they use it for washing line, is old insulated cable. There must have been hundreds of miles of this cable. You know, you can imagine the old um, telephone systems, you know, where you pick up the phone and you, you wind it and it goes through this copper wire. And there's still a lot of that left over, but the, you, you hear stories from the war of men using that as a guide. It must have annoyed the signalers because it probably would have done damage, but coming down at night time and holding on to um, the signal wire to get down and navigate up the side of the creek in the dark, it would just be extraordinary. Well, tell us more about uh, what we're going to uncover as we as we walk this ground today. So as we go on from um, from Alola and we start walking along a different part, a different mountain, there is another recently built um, uh, museum for want of a different term. It's a hut um, basically with a wire cage around it and a roof on it. And it's just off the side. Again, if you didn't know it was there, you just walk straight past it. There's no sign or anything, but... It's, it's, it's been an attempt to try and, um, you know, keep this stuff from disappearing or going, you know, to souvenir hunters and things like that. But you, you, inside the um, this shelter, if you will, with a cage around it, you can see a different type of uh, battlefield remnants that you would have seen at Alola Village. And it's mainly um, ordnance, as in mortar rounds, uh, Japanese mountain gun rounds, and also um, a lot of Australian number 36 grenades. Um, and even some Japanese grenades in there, and the metal backpacks that carried the projectiles and the um, um, the detonators that go inside the rounds for the Japanese mountain guns, they're still in, in quite good nick. And you've also got things like 
the um, uh, ammunition trays that would have been used, or the belts rather, the, the metal belts that would have gone into the um, woodpecker machine guns. There's quite a lot of those there, so it's definitely worth seeing. And that one's uh, that little side trip is only a five minute drop off the track, so it's not a huge thing. Sometimes people uh, can easily be distracted by the fact that you know you put your pack down and go for a walk. Um, you've got to walk back. You're going to do extra walking. So some people opt out of it. But always say to people, even if you're feeling tired, dig deep because, okay, it's a, it might be another bullet or it might be another grenade or something. You've just seen one at the last museum. But the important thing is this has all come from that area. They're not. It's not like it's transported in there. You're actually seeing um, what you otherwise wouldn't be able to see because it's, of course, hidden under the foliage of the, um, of the jungle. Is it a problem in the in the mountains, the unexploded ordnance? Because we, we heard the tragic tale a year or two ago of, of ordnance disposal people in uh, the Solomon Islands um, passing away when uh, when some ordnance detonated. Is, it, is that an issue for the for the local people in the mountains? Uh, not that I'm aware of, certainly not in the time that I've been up there. Uh, I mean, I wouldn't play and we discourage people from touching or playing with, with ordnance, in particular mortars and grenades and things like that. But it was um, told to me that, you know, five metres of rainfall in the Owen Stanleys, most of them are um, uh, whatever mechanisms or that inside it to make it go off doesn't go off. That means you w- I'm not suggesting that it, it couldn't go off, but you don't really hear cases of people in the villages being harmed or you don't see evidence of it. I'm sure it must have been a problem immediately after the war, but 80 years on it seems to be more of one where they cultivate their gardens, they find the stuff, they pile it up and it ends up in these little museum um, style, you know, huts and that along the way. I think the other thing important to remember too is a lot of the culture, well, all of the cultivation up in the mountains done by the local people is done by hand and hand tools as opposed to, you know, big diggers and things that would smash open ordnance and, you know, detonating as you'd see on the Western Front. So it is actually about a good point uh, because the Pacific um, has had some issues, but it doesn't seem to have had the same amount of issues as what's gone on on the Western Front over the last hundred or so years. Mm. That's good to hear um it just surprised me about the amount of stuff you can i I think when i when we discuss battles and armies and wars the thing that always strikes me that i try to impress on people is the scale that just the the numbers of people involved you know if you're talking a battalion or even a company you know we're talking a lot of people in a small space and the amount of gear they carried with them and it's just it, it, it always is astounding when you go to the western front and see the huge piles of shells left over or you go to guadalcanal and see a a local house absolutely bursting with you know unfired rounds um just extraordinary isn't it the amount of stuff that still makes its appearance indeed and it continues to appear you know from the jungle it just seems to um as it does on other battlefields but the jungle in particular seems to just you know you you it just seems to just spew it out from the ground i mean um every time i go back there there'll be something different or something added to the collection um and you know there are even anomalies that you all of a sudden you go oh yeah i've seen we've seen one mortar bomb you've seen them all but sometimes something really interesting has been discovered in that very spot that we're talking about now um a battery um and i thought why is a six volt car battery you know back in the 40s most cars were six volt there's a smaller just similar to a car battery but about half the size of a modern car battery why would why was there a car battery all the way out in the middle of nowhere but of course that battery was used to put that bit of power through those um, signal wire that we're talking about before to run the communications because whilst they did have some radios, radio sets a line of sight, they didn't really work very well in the mountain. All of the communications was done by reeling out the signalman, reeling out these literally backpacks with um, 
you know, rolls of signal wire being laid out and going through exchanges. You know, imagine the old telephone exchange where, you, you know, they stick the, um, the needle into another section and then somebody's got the phone and they ring it and they send a line through. But that's what the batteries and the insulators that you find, um, amazing stuff and intact that you could still read the label on it. I mean, that's amazing. You know, all that rainfall and all that, you can see it. So there's still some quite, every time I go back, as I said, you still see something different, which reveals a part of the everyday life of what uh, the soldiers would have uh, seen and, and had to use in that environment. Well, we're now approaching Yora Creek, as we said, the, the big battle of the of the campaign. Uh, just just tell us about the, give us the, the history of what went on there and, uh, and, and relate to us what you discover there today. Yeah, so... Eora Creek is very special to me. The way we're going, which is uh, north south, we're following the Australian withdrawal. So if we if we still followed the the campaign, the way we're walking on this trip, it is at the stage stage of that of the campaign in the Australian withdrawal. It basically was a staging area with a um, a, a hospital, uh, a field hospital, if you will. So all those casualties that were coming back from the Battle of um, Brigade, uh, sorry, from Isarava would have made their way down through Alola to Eora Creek and they would have been um, treated there and processed and they would have been sent up to Myola and on to the other staging um, camps to get people back up off the track itself, of course, carried by the carriers or as we know them, know them today, the Fuzzy Wuzzy Angels. Uh, if anybody has seen the Academy Award winning documentary Kokoda Frontline by Davian Parra, you will see the camera pan around to Eora Creek and you can't mistake the creek. It is a big, fast-flowing creek. It's not something that you would just wade through. You have to use a bridge to get across it and it is a noisy thing. If you ever camp down near Eora Creek, which we're about to on this journey, you would um, you can hear it. Uh, it keeps people awake at night. It's a huge uh, water um, feature. And in 1942, on the Australian withdrawal, it would have been, as I said, a, a place that would have been buzzing with Australian soldiers, medical people, uh, carriers who were bringing supplies up and also turning around and carrying our wounded out. Um, and that's what it was in August of 1942. But if you go the other way, if we follow the Australian advance and we just change directions for a moment, and this is the Australian advance where we push the Japanese back this is the site of the biggest battle in the Owen Stanleys and it is um, a, a place where I always stop and take people. I really ask people to dig deep because, again, you've got to take the, drop the backpacks and climb up on the side of the hill and when you get up to the uh, on the mountain, I should say, not a hill on the mountain, you get up to the top and, again, you're walking through collections of ammunition and mortar bombs and Japanese mountain gun rounds and you get to stand where the Japanese mountain gun was facing down towards Ayora Creek and across to um, the Ayora village clearing. And this is where um, between uh, the end of August, right at the end of August, and the 1st of September, the Australians were withdrawing. The Japanese followed them there. But on the way back through, this is where they dug in and they held the advancing Australians at bay. In fact, um, it was, as I said, the, the biggest battle in the in the Owen Stanley's, and it is one of the most least talked about battles in the Owen Stanley campaign. What's the effect on people when they get there, David, and when they learn about this history, and then they stand in these key spots? That must be pretty um, a pretty emotive moment for people on the trek. It is, and one of the things that um, I, I use to demonstrate 
not just the Battle of Eora Creek, but also the, um, um, I guess, the, uh, the, the highlight Australian service and sacrifice is I tell a story uh, which is about the Manusu brothers. And um, I know we mentioned Con Vap before or Vapalopas, who happened to be Greek. The Manusu boys were of Greek descent as well. I'm not singling out people of Greek descent. It's just the way that it um, has unfolded. And, um, and a lot of Victorians at, um, as well we're following on this, uh, on this journey. <laughs> yes, indeed, indeed. And who made a... I've got a friend, Steve Kritzis, who was the president of the Hellenic RSL and who came on a... He's a Vietnam vet as well. Um, who came across Kokoda and he's written a great book on um, on Greek uh, uh, Greek Australian uh, uh, people. He mentions uh, Convap and obviously the Manusu brothers in his book. But when you get there and you look down at Eora Creek and you look to see where the Australians, the advancing Australians, were pinned down on the other side. In fact, as I mentioned before, you've got this fast flowing creek, and when the Australians advanced, were being pin- pinned down by Japanese machine guns and mountain guns and mortars. The diaries talk about. Um, the um, men having to uh, capture water in their rain capes to drink, even though they could hear the creek where they could go and get water and you get all this rainfall, they couldn't get to the water source. So they had to catch it in their rain capes because the Japanese from this position had them pinned down. And when I take people up there and you can see a Yora Creek, you can see where the Australians had to cross, you can see where the Australians would have been, had their positions. In fact, when you do cross and you go up there, you can still see... Um, the the, the um, weapons pits, the Australian weapon pits, but you know it's when you when you look up there, you think oh it's all out in the open you're seeing, but when you get down the other side and look back to where we're standing, where the Japanese positions are, you go where was that? It's just jungle. You cannot see it. Uh, it's an amazing um, part of the track, and um, I just wanted to uh, highlight. Um, the story of the Manusu boys just for a second and basically um, the Manusu brothers um, were from uh, north coast of uh, New South Wales at a little place called Bowerville. If you go there uh, today there's a wonderful council chambers has been turned into a military museum so a shout out to anyone that's going to Bowerville in New South Wales, the old timber town. Uh, have a look and check out the, um, the, um, the museum there but basically um, the father of the family was a chap, Frank Manusu, and he had, um, had had five boys and a daughter. And uh, without going into the entire uh, story, um, the two of his sons were in the 2nd 1st Battalion, um, which was part of the 16th Brigade, and they were the Australians pushing the Japanese at this point. And we're talking um, October 1942, where they were pushing them, um, these Japanese, back across the track and... Um, uh, in the course of the battle, uh, the 16th Brigade, which, as I said, comprised of the 2nd 1st Battalion, where the Minusia boys are from, but also the 2nd 2nd and 2nd 3rd Battalions, and um, they were ordered to uh, clear, attack and clear the Japanese that were on the other side. And uh, during the course of the of the battle, they crossed that major water feature of Eora Creek and, um, the, and just happened to be in, with a full moon, and they were lit up on the bridge. The water came up, washed the bridge away, and at the start of the battle, a lot of men got stuck on the Japanese side of Eora Creek. So this is a spot where we are now. We're standing, looking down at Eora Creek. And you imagine these guys cross the creek, cross the bridge. Bridge gets swept away. Uh, the moon was up. They got lit up, so to speak. The Japanese knew where they were. They were coming down on them and they got um, they got stuck on, on this steep slope, which they were ordered to attack and to come up to these 
Japanese, and these are Japanese uh, soldiers that had made it, you know, all the way across the track to only two two ridges to get to the, to their destination, and then were ordered to withdraw. And they made a hard stand uh, and really dug in there. And in fact, they had. We know now that there was intelligence at the time that they could have been reinforced, so they thought that we might be able to take the attack. So they were demoralised, but when they were at Eora Creek, the morale on the Japanese side had lifted a bit. And here we are, these advancing Australian soldiers that get across the creek, they get stuck on the other side at the start of the battle, and two of the Manusu boys um, lost their lives. And uh, it's very sad. They um, One, one um, had a grenade bounce off a tree, and he copped it and later died of shock, and whereas the other one had um, lost his life um, by Japanese uh, machine gun fire. So, And they're both buried at Pamana War Cemetery next to each other. And um, um, without going too far into the, the complete story, the, um, the uh, Second World War didn't... Uh, weren't very kind to that little um, family in Bowerville um, before the war ended. Uh, there was another Manusu boy who um, had... Um, had, had died and uh, you know this one little family that um, had um, lost and given so much uh, in fact we all know the story of private saving private Ryan I wouldn't say this is a saving private Ryan's story but the father Frank had written to the army asking that they'd at least send one of his other sons home um, uh, um, to be um, to, you know to spare to spare them and um, you know, it's it's a sad, it's a sad, uh, a very sad story for that for that one family. But if you're standing there where we are now at Eora Creek, looking down down uh, from the Japanese mountain gun position, and you can see how steep the Australians would have had to have had their rifle bayonets, etc., uh, climb up and attack the Japanese. It's just a awe inspiring. I don't know how anyone could not be moved and even myself every time I'm there you end up telling the Manusu stories and, and, and tears are streaming down your cheeks it's that um, it's that uh, I guess uh, emotional to be there just extraordinary stuff David I assume at some stage we've actually got to cross this creek on the trek how does uh, how does that go we do uh, and it's every time I get there I'm surprised because of course any given season the water will come up and inevitably wash bridges away so there's no permanent bridges there sometimes you're met by a wonderful structure there is one just been built uh, only a few months ago and you know they're uh, like a, almost like a suspension bridge uh, where all the vines have been tied and it's you know it's got a um, support over the top of you like a, a, a loop an arch coming down it's kind of like a mini harbour bridge if you will um, and it is a challenge. And when you get there, you're tired, your body is shaking. Um, I know myself, uh, I, I, on my last trip uh, there, you get there and your knees start shaking. Um, you know, you don't have any control over them, not because you're scared necessarily, but just because you've come down the side of it and you're quite fatigued. And there is this fast-flowing, think, white water rapids and big rocks. It is um, a, 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 quite a, a cold and... and um, you know, fast-flowing river. And uh, even though it's Eura Creek, it's actually a river and it's a very powerful river. You wouldn't want to get washed away with it. So, yeah, it's these sort of spots where you're crossing and you're crossing on a um, a bridge made out of bush materials, which is exactly what would have been done in 1942, 80 years ago. It was exactly made of very things like logs and branches and all those sort of stuff put together by the locals. And uh, you're crossing one. And so when you do that, and you're hearing a Yorick Creek and your knees are knocking, that is pretty much what an Australian soldier would have felt back 
during the war. So again, when we go back to this idea of why it's important to walk the battlefield, um, you're having an experience, and okay, it's not no one's shooting at you, and you're not, um, you know, you haven't been out there for as long and deprived of all of the things. But by now, you've had a couple of nights on the track. You're tired. You're hungry. You're fatigued, and uh, you're hearing, smelling, crossing the same type of thing that our soldiers would have done. And if that doesn't bring it to life, I don't know. Unless you've got a time machine, I don't know what will. So very important to have that experience. And when you do pick up the book or listen to the podcast, you can go, oh, yeah, I understand how big a Yorra Creek was and how big uh, an a, a, um, obstacle it was for our soldiers. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com code buttery exclusions apply see site for details hiring for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on linkedin you're looking in the wrong place that's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank linkedin helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role in a given month over 70 percent of linkedin users don't even visit other leading job sites so start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Just extraordinary stuff, David. I can't wait to get over there myself. Where are we uh, Where are we heading to next after your... Well, we're going to have lunch here. We're going to have lunch here, Matt. I have to... I, I love to sit and have lunch by the fast-flowing Euro Creek. All the beautiful butterflies called Alexander Butterflies. They come out. Uh, it's amazing. And, um, you know, the, um, by now our team of guides, local 
chaps. Mine are called the Green Green Machine, the team, because they have green shirts and they are a machine, so they call themselves the Green Machine. They would have had the water boiling, and there's nothing like having a, a, a warm cup of whatever your um, whatever you desire, a cup of soup or, a, in my case, a cup of tea. And looking back, and I always say to people, tell me, where were we just standing an hour or so before? Where do you think the Japanese mountain gun is? And people are just looking off into that abyss of the jungle and going, I've no idea. Um, it's quite, uh, it's quite um, you know, I guess thought-provoking. And to think that you wouldn't be safe if you were having where we're having lunch, you wouldn't have been safe 80 years ago because those Japanese weapon systems are trained on you. And after lunch, we start climbing. By now, um, you're in an area because the creek is cold, it's very moist, the temperature noticeably drops. When you leave a lull and get down to Euro Creek proper, the um, temperature has dropped and uh, at uh, people think, you know, tropics, it's going to be hot all the time. No, when you stop, you start to cool down. Uh, people would put on a fleece when they're having their lunch, even in the, you know, in the midday, late afternoon uh, down near Euro Creek. And then ahead of us, we're going to have two big climbs and leaving the lunch spot, we're going to, we climb up a, 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 uh, I guess part of this other range that we're on because we've once again crossed onto over the creek. We're on a different side of the mountain now, and we're walking up under very thick and wooded wooded canopy. And it's a big drop down on one side to Yora Creek. And the amazing thing is, as you walk along, you can see. And I don't know how I I do not know how they have survived because unlike some battlefields that you go to, like we mentioned the Western Front, where there are pillboxes and things made of concrete. These Australian weapons pits have been dug. They were dug by hand and they were just dug into the ground. And whilst they are not the same depth as they would have been 80 years ago, they are everywhere. And they were mainly, the ones that you're seeing are mainly used going the direction that we're going, following the battle. We, we took a little bit of a pause there and talked about the Australian advance. But going the way we're going, this is where Australian soldiers dug in and they pepper-potted in reverse. So, you know, some soldiers dug in and waited for their soldiers to move through and then they followed them and other soldiers had dug in and so the process goes. But these litter left and right of the track and you can still see them. They'd probably be up to, in I suppose the deepest ones would probably be up around to your knees and in their day they would have been up to your chest. But I am still amazed that after five metres of rainfall every year for 80 years, not built out of any permanent materials, that the depressions are still there in the ground. It's just... Um, amazing to think that our boys were once dug in there fighting the Japanese. It's just extraordinary stuff. It must be those small little tangible links with the history that really brings it to life. Because I think it strikes me as, as an experience, the physical challenge is so great. You could forget you're on a battlefield. It could, it could be like hiking in you know, the Andes or something where you just, you're, you're trying to cope with the, the physical aspects of the voyage. But it must be extraordinary to then come across those tangible reminders of the war. I agree. And if you are there walking, um, like we are in this podcast, you're walking along, as I said, I was mentioned at the lunch stop, we had saw butterflies, the scenery is beautiful. And yes, you're right, we're still uh, having to deal with the everyday of putting one foot in front of the other. And it is easy for you to be distracted by all of these other elements. But when you see something like the depressions in the ground and put it into perspective that these are what Australian soldiers dug in, often with helmet and bayonet, and they are still there, and you go, wow. Because it's not just one, Matt. There's not just one or two. There's a section there where you climb out of your creek where there's half a dozen in a row, 
and uh, you could not know not, not you could not not notice them they are there in your face and you go and once you see one then you go oh where's another one and you walk along and then they you know it's like seeing a a, a v-dub beetle once you see one you end up seeing a hundred of them and it's the same thing on the track you see one uh weapons pit and then you'll see another and you go oh is that one and then you go and where we're going now up over the first um i call them humps there's two humps to get one from eora creek we're heading to templeton's crossing and the other one is to a place that they call dump one so there's these two sections where they're t- like twin camel humps if you will and um yeah you've got this reminder with the with the um um uh the the, the foxholes or the, the weapons pits the australian weapon pits but in this area where we are now and as i said the temperatures change again it's a long day because i tell people to their packs down and we take you off into the bush and there is a an amazing uh it's actually the site of where the australian uh, field dressing station was but it's also an area where australians buried a lot of equipment to deny the japanese so you could imagine a withdrawing a retreating army I don't like to say the word retreat but a withdrawing army coming back after the battle of Isarava. they've got all this gear it's too much there's not they've got too many other things they just need to move at a faster pace so all the heavy stuff what do they do with it? They bury it, deny it from the enemy. And there is one particular spot where we are now where uh, there's obviously one of the local people have discovered it and dug it up, but there would have to be literally 100, 150 three-inch mortars, three-inch mortars, quite quite a big uh, bomb, a mortar bomb, and they are just stacked upon. Um, in fact, some of them still have... Uh, the paint on it they have not corroded you can still see the different bands you know whether it's high explosive or it's smoke they're all color coded and you can read the writing on them at some stage there's a heap of those just off the side of the track along with some um the most remarkable thing and the only time i've ever seen it there was um uh, you have a, uh, a like a board that had all of the the bits and pieces where you can stick the um the, the headsets in or whatever to listen on the um you know from the signal uh, people, self-soldiers, I mean, they would have had this board that you could stick all the jacks in from the headphones and that, and that's still there and it's still got the Bakelite, uh, you know, knobs on it. You you also have a wonderful um, collection of um, of those base plates off the number 36 grenades, which just that they put down the um, cup discharges. And as I said, Matt, there is not just one or two. It would be the single biggest collection out in the open on the track that's available to see at the moment or one of one of two big collections actually but it is mind um boggling to see these three inch mortars and think hang on a second this stuff was destined to be used at the battle of Isarava and they've been carried you know which in which is basically a day's march away it's uh, really again you look at it and just go oh my goodness they had to walk what i've just done and they had to carry this gear as well extraordinary extraordinary you mentioned um, Templeton's Crossing, which I know is a, a, a special site for you. Tell us, uh, tell us about that. The next stop on the track. Yeah, so the, so we're headed to our night location now. So we've had lunch, and we've. Um, I mean, I sound like uh, it's only a five minute jaunt, but I can assure you, it's not when you're there on the ground. But um, yeah, we're going to get down into Templeton's Crossing, and Templeton's Crossing is uh, it's, it consists of two campsites. There's one on the other side of the of the creek and one on the side that you're currently walking on of course the creek is eora creek because you've been following eora creek uh it's been to the right of us the whole time we're walking along um and it's really 
I, I guess in some senses, for me, it, it reminds me of, it's almost medieval. And when I say medieval, because there's always a fog that hangs low, you're down inside a gully, you've got this big roaring creek, it's cold. Um, the creek, uh, the correction, the campsite that's on the other side of the creek, you've got to cross a, a quite a high bridge that's actually been made out of milled wood. And you get down to the side and there's always these huts on stilts with smoke coming out of them, like smoke out of a chimney kind of thing. And to my mind, it always reminds me of a scene of a, uh, you see in a movie that deals with medieval um, Europe or England or that, you know, and you're just, uh, you all of a sudden I'm uh, expecting a, a British uh, foot soldier to come out with his round helmet on, you know, it's that conjuring up those sorts of images. And you're tired, we're wet, we're thirsty, um, we want to get, um, we want to get our bed set up and there's this little long house or hut, I should say, called a long house. And it's got a two bench seats running along it with a dirt floor. Again, very medieval. And it's got the stones around a fire in the center. And then at one end, there's a bench and the guys that are doing the cooking for us are on the other side there with another fire going. And that signal wires up all over the place for people to hang out there, um, washing or rather what they want to try and uh, get dry because it won't dry, but you can hang it up anyway. And uh, we're, we're settled down and um, it's a somber place because it wasn't that long ago that um, remains were, were found there and it was the area that Australian soldiers had been buried um, en masse there, which was left over from, um, uh, of course, uh, the Australian advance that we're talking about at Eora Creek. In fact, Templeton's Crossing going the other way was for many of the advancing Australian soldiers the first place that they had made contact with the Japanese. Uh, Templeton's Crossing, as I said, we're on at the moment on our little journey today. We've crossed the creek to the campsite on the other side of Eora Creek, which we have to cross back again to get back on the track proper. But you're in this little medieval hamlet. Imagine that you've got uh, an area which has got um, uh, star pickets being put in by locals, which represented where the um, where the um, burial site of Australians were. And the place has been named because during uh, the war years and immediate pre-war years, it was where the <coughs> mail trail crossed over. And a man named Bert Keensel, who we spoke about before, he had actually found a way to get the main mail track to cross over Yorra Creek. And of course, it's a crossing. And he called it Templeton's Crossing. And he named it after um, someone that I'm very interested in, which was a 39th Battalion officer, um, Captain Sam Templeton, who had lost his life um, uh, earlier on at the campaign. And Bert Kinzel had walked with him and his men, Templeton B Company, as the very first group of Australian soldiers to make their way all the way across the track. Now, this is before the Japanese landed. They set off on the 7th of July. Remember, the Japanese don't land until the 21st of July. They set off two weeks before the Japanese come, and Bert Kinzel had walked with them to lead them all the way into Kokoda before he turned around and went back again. And whilst he only knew Sam Templeton for that short couple of weeks, when he'd heard news that Templeton had um, been missing, um, presumed killed, uh, he had named this crossing Templeton's Crossing. Um, so some people think, oh, is that where Templeton got killed, etc.? No, it was where Bert Kings linked the mail routes up to cross Eora Creek, hence becoming a crossing, and he named it in honour of Captain Sam Templeton. Pretty special spot, mate, and um, a welcome respite, I assume, on the trek when you have your overnight here. People must uh, must appreciate getting there and uh, getting a chance to get their boots off and rest for the evening. Indeed, and I think um, you know if you if you're going to have the 
uh, creek uh, keep you awake at night, you obviously haven't walked hard enough. <laughs> <laughs> so the next morning we've had a good sleep, hopefully a good sleep. We're getting up and we're, we're off again. Where are we heading to next on the track? We're heading off. Uh, when you wake up at Templeton's uh, Crossing, uh, the, the first thing that will um, that you can't help but notice is the fog. There'll always be a fog. Just about always there's a fog, and as the fog lifts, it's in various stages uh, on height, I guess, as it comes up the side of the mountain. So we're we're going to continue on to what some people have. They used to call it Templeton's One and Templeton's Two. Where we've just stayed is the actual true Templeton's Crossing, and the next stop which is rightly really named Dump 1. It was a supply dump. Um, again, a supply dump put in by Keensland and the carriers and all those guys. And it's a similar journey to what we've done from the day before where we had our lunch spot walking to Temples Crossing. We're going to do another one of those, the second hump, if you will. I call them like camel's humps. The second hump as we walk from Templeton's Crossing to Dump 1. And, and again, we're following Eora Creek. It's on our right-hand side. And you'll see a few weapons pits as you go. There is mud everywhere if you see images of the Kokoda track where you see soldiers sliding in the mud and all that this area is particularly muddy underfoot because it's always damp there are little side creeks that come out they seem to come out of nowhere and cross over the the creek so your feet are in mud um, and um, you know you will slip and you will slide and you will do all those things Um, you can't help but uh, you'll look at the person in front of you and they'll have mud all down the side of their leg because inevitably you've had had a slip in fact I don't remember ever walking Coda and not having a fall it happens to the best of us so uh, it really conjures up those images that you see of wartime photos of men um and and you know having their, their being up to their knees in mud. I mean you're not going to be up to your knees in mud on on the trek, uh, hopefully, be, um, because you know it's not the same as as you mentioned before. Matt battalions are large bodies of men which really churn the trek up. It's not quite as bad as that, but you will get that sense of feeling and you'll get that sense of um, you know. Uh, having mud and slipping and sliding and really getting into what we think the Kokoda track is. So once we go through that, you come down, believe it or not, to Eora Creek again. So this will be the next time we cross it. This time we're going to cross it for the last time and we're going to start climbing up uh, what they call the gap, up to the gap. Um, They called it the gap um, because, um, well, it is a gap, but uh, there was a, a, a crazy idea that was uh, around in 1942 that they could perhaps, like Thermopylae, they could have blown it up and get some TNT and hold the Japanese back. But it's a huge gap. You couldn't blow it up. I mean, you could um, you could put a city in between it. It's that big almost. But um, we're going to uh, leave uh, that side and leave Eora Creek for the time being behind, although we will come to it again. And we're going to climb up, to, um, up through the gap and across... Um, to, heading towards Myola, and which for me is um, the, all the places are special, but Myola in particular is quite a, I'm going to use the word magical, it is a very magical place. Um, and uh, you have a change of scenery because one thing that's important to point out, the whole time you're walking across Kokoda, it's not just jungle like you think it's just all going to be green and whatever. There is distinct types of jungle, different plants, hearing different sounds and noises in the in the in the bush and it changes it does it changes uh, quite uniquely different flowers um you will see uh different vines and trees you've got these big pandanus type um you know almost phallic like um you know um trees that you can't and the boys uh, I'll let them if you come up to New Guinea to tell the story because there's some folklore 
that come around those trees about a man's anatomy, which is quite, it gets a giggle every time you walk across it. But um, again, uh, you are walking pretty much where the Australian forces had withdrew through and they were in a hurry at this time and you'll still see you won't see as many of the weapons pits but you will certainly see uh, a lot of um, um, you know areas which are still scarred in the sense of the landscape because uh, villages wouldn't have their main village there but they've become satellite villages if you will which are campsites which have been built for Australians undertaking their pilgrimages and when I say campsites again these are these huts with fire pits and a mess hut and those sorts of things yeah extraordinary area and um what's the history of Mayola as we as we cross through this region well the reason why i say it's magical is because um Mayola is uh there's actually two there's Mayola 1 and Mayola 2 and um we've climbed up now to get to them up to the highest point on the track and we uh go to a junction and the junction would uh, take you if you continue to walk the way we're walking that will just take you down to a village uh, uh, sorry not a village but rather a campsite called 1900 named because 1900 meters above sea level or you can go down the junction that takes you down to Myola. and I'll explain first um, um, uh, why it's named it's actually an indigenous Australian an aboriginal name and it means dawn or a, a rising of dawn it was named by Bert Kienzel he had flown over the area um, many times before the war. And uh, you imagine, and this is why I think it's magical, because they're, they're, they're lake beds, but they're not lakes in the sense that they're full of water and you could wade through them. They're dry lake beds, but they're still damp. When I say dry, they're dry in respects that they're not a lake, but they're still um, quite, um, uh, you know, uh, I guess, uh, damp and you can put your foot on the reeds and sometimes and there'll be an inch of water comes up over your boot but um, why they are there is they are I believe uh, old uh, volcanoes they are what was remnants of volcanoes from a very very long time ago and whatever geographical uh, thing goes on in that feature the jungle stops and that's why it's magical you go to a tree line and all of a sudden the tree line stops and you're like you're looking out over this savanna of um you know this flat um well not flat but i guess low foliage i'm talking flat in the sense of not big trees like the jungle you've got some reeds and you've got um some amazing grasses and that that sort of grow and they're just this big open space and here you are walking along single track in the jungle quite thick canopy overhead and there's just this natural occurrence and when you do fly which everyone that walks Kokodi you have to have flown in or flown out whichever way you walk you'll look down and you'll see hundreds of these uh, dotting the landscape but these two particular ones are ones that Kinsel had Bert Kinsel had seen from the air knew they were in the vicinity and in preparation for the Battle of Isarava uh, Brigadier Arnold Potts who was in charge of the 21st Brigade which two of those battalions, the 2nd, 16th and the 2nd, 14th, had been the ones that were fighting at Isarava. He had demanded that before his army marches, remember back to what we said in the last episode where the 39th had been dug in at Isarava waiting for the AAF guys, he demanded that he had an area that he could, um, or not an area rather, he demanded that he could, he needed X amount of supplies of food and ammunition, obviously to take his um, uh Brigade to go and engage in this battle. And Bert Kienzel, who had seen this open spaces from the air, knew that they were somewhere in the area. And he sent out 
some parties of his men and himself, and they ended up finding two of these areas. And again, he named them after his commanding officer's wife, uh, who's named Myola, and it's an Aboriginal word meaning dawn. And um, they were used for uh, a famous element of the Kokoda campaign. I think anyone that's read a book on it would have heard about the biscuit bombers, because obviously one of the rations that Australians had was a hardtack biscuit. And so bombs drop out of planes, but on this occasion that was food, so they called them biscuit bombers. And they literally uh, flew supplies and most of them, some had some parachutes on them, but most of them were just wrapped, you know, they were wrapped up in blankets. They were wrapped up in um, whatever they could find in their crates and they were, the plane uh, would fly, um, you know, the C-47s would fly in low over this open area and they would literally just kick them out the side of the plane and they would obviously inevitably hit the ground and go everywhere and they'd have teams that would go out and pick up the tins of bully beef, the ammunition. Remember earlier on I told you about the mortars that went down the tubes that had been damaged. That's how they got damaged because they were pushed out in this area. And if you go there um, today, as I said, it is magic. The jungle just stops, open space, local people, even to this day, but imagine what it would have been like back in um, Kynsel's time when they had, um, you know, they had um, uh, not enough, uh, I guess... Uh, modern uh, communication device. People living in the in the in the village wouldn't have um, would have had different ideas about things and what they do today. And they was they I have seen um, people hunters that go hunting prepare themselves with a ritual before they cross Myola because it's a very spiritual place. Because you know you have to humankind has to come up with ways to um, rational rationalize things that aren't uh, seem to be unexplainable. Why does the jungle just stop? So great for the Australians fighting uh, the war because they had these open spaces that they could drop um, supplies. But um, um, some of Keensel's carriers refused to go in there because of this spirituality connected with it. But it's an amazing place to go there and to look out and to just imagine what it would have been like to have one of those C-47s fly low over and throw their supplies out the side. Just extraordinary. And there's some quite good footage as well from the war of of those planes coming in. We're going to leave Myola now and head off to the last of our stops on today's episode. Uh, It's a fogey. So tell us about this last little section we're doing today. So after, yeah, so after we leave um, Myola, um, we start to get back on the track and we're dropping down through what they call the moss forest. Again, very damp. It's where moss grows, but um, it is amazing uh, scenery. And I'll just divert from the war history just for a second because... And I'm by no means an expert in um, flora and fauna of PNG, but you can't help but to see uh, these um, wonderful bird, birds' nests, which are built on the ground, a bit like, I guess, an Australian lyrebird, in the sense that there'll be blue objects uh, gathered, and they're extraordinary. Uh, it's very I've only ever seen the bird once or twice, but you see the nests, and they come up to about, they're above waist height, and they're kind of this very ornate tall uh, sort of spike coming up with um, with almost rings built around it in various different levels and as I said blue things or, or, or items collected at the bottom they're amazing and the moss the moss is on the trees and um, if you're there at night some of the moss is um, uh, is luminescent you can you know it, it, it sort of glows in the dark so you've got this wonderful um, um, you know um, f- flora and, and fauna to see and as you march down through the um, um the uh the the moss forest it starts to on your left hand side you start to see the jungle fall away and start to see some um i guess rolling hills 
and those hills are similar to the um, um, to what you would have seen when you were back up uh, on the Kokoda side, looking back down. Um, you know, having a look at the um, uh, at the open spaces. So it, again, it changes. You were at, you, the, the the jungle disappeared. You saw Myola, and we're walking down through this damp. And by this stage, it's going to be. Um, late in the afternoon and guess what happens we're going to get rained on and underfoot it becomes hard clay it's this red clay and uh, the red clay is uh, slippery because it's hard and again people are going to go for the person in front of you will slip over and end up on their bum and you'll have a giggle and they'll look back at a giggle at you and then next thing you'll hear a mighty thud and it's you that's fallen over on the ground so uh you know i don't know sometimes it's demoralizing or usually you turn it around and have a good laugh and that seems to go on forever until you start to hear water flowing and it'll be flowing through a pipe and there's this pipe going down to the village of naduri and when you get down through the moss forest there's another junction one takes you over to kagi which is actually one of the wartime villages or you can go left into a little village with Naduri and this pipe sort of follows all the way down into the village and you start to see the what they call the pig fences. So they build these fences about waist height to keep the pigs off the gardens and uh, and then you'll start to hear children and you'll start to move into the um into the um um uh, into the village itself and again be met by kids and met by stalls selling bananas and um and um mandarins and cans of coke and solo and things like that there's also an airstrip at naduri and one thing that stands out is you look up in the tree and there's this i always call it like it's the air traffic control tower but it's not it's a it's a hut that's been like a tree house built up in the tree which is quite extraordinary how they managed to do that and um this junction here uh will then head towards a fogey so at the moment a fogey there are two there is a fogey north which is the one that we're closest to and there's a fogey too, which is the bigger of the two villages. During the war, you went through Kargi, which is a village out to our right where we're standing now, and then it dropped down to wartime of fogey. And this is in, I guess, preparation for the next big battle following the direction that we're going. And one is um, one is the, um, uh, the Battle of Brigade Hill, of course, but just before that, the Japanese Lantern Parade. Pick up any Kokoda history book, and you'll see that the Japanese, in preparation for the Battle of Brigade Hill, um, they had a, they had come down the side of the mountain at night time using these lanterns, and the Australians could see them from the other side. They were too far out to really have any of their weapon systems being able to engage them, and you think what it would have been like to see these Japanese. But that's that's later for the Battle of Brigade Hill. But this is a spot that we're in at the moment, and it is a steep climb down from the village of Naduri until you hit a creek, not Eora Creek, but another fast-flowing creek before you start to walk up the other side. And you get into this little Afogi or Afogi North, and um, this is the place where there is a Japanese war memorial. And if you remember earlier on, I said there was one at Kokoda. There is only one on the track itself. This one isn't one that's been built by an association. Rather, it was built by a veteran, a Japanese veteran named Kochi Nishimura. And um, there was a wonderful book written about him called The Bone Man of Kokoda some years ago. And um, basically, Nishimura, who had fought at the Battle of Brigade Hill, had come back after, in fact, he, the year I was born, 1979, this guy buys a boat, sails from Japan to New Guinea, ends up spending um, decades basically going back along the uh, battlefield and digging up Japanese soldiers and taking their bones back to Japan. Won't go too much into it, but in the course of it, 
he built a memorial and the memorial was built out of fogey and it's kind of a small very simple uh, built out of uh, river stones and it comes up to about chest high i've never actually seen it but there was a big ball that was um, like a smooth carved stone ball on the on the on the top of it that had you know japanese writing on commemorating the battle and the folklore of the village goes that of course some of the uh, Papuan people in those post-war years had still remembered some of the um, horrific things that the Japanese had done and um, the story is that someone got the ball and threw it down the side of the mountain but it was later recovered and on to this day I'm yet to see it but apparently someone in the village has got the top of Nishimura's memorial but it, it but although it's uh, Nishimura's story is quite strange it's very interesting to see that yeah there's this Japanese the only Japanese memorial on the um on on Kokoda and there's a local guy there named Stanley who's still about and if he is in in at home when you when I take a group through he'll come out and his father who's passed away now but his father worked for Nishimura because Nishimura employed people to help him do diggings I guess and would camp on the battlefield and dig up um dig up remains so it's quite a bit morbid morbid but it's a very unique part of um of the of the Kokoda story, I guess, and uh, here it is in this little village of Afogi. Absolutely, and the recovery, particularly of those Japanese remains, is um, is a, a really essential element of fighting in the Pacific because the Japanese did not recover remains uh, as resolutely as the Allied forces did, and uh, it really took decades after the war for people to come back. I know in Guadalcanal they still do the same thing, even to this day. Parties come back from Japan, search for remains, and then um, and then cremate them. Uh, near the Japanese memorial. So, no, an absolutely essential part of the story. I think after 80 years, the, the animosity has mostly died away and it's now a story of humanity and, uh, and, and recovering those remains is an essential part of it. So that's a lovely part of the story. Um, an overnight at a fogey, and that's where we're going to end our journey. Is there anything else we need to add? For, we, we, uh, for we are going traveling? to end our... Well, we are going to end our journey, Matt, but we're in the smaller fogey and just when we thought it was over, Kokoda keeps... Jumping back up and giving us a slap in the face in when it comes to uh, physical exhaustion. So uh, by now, if it hadn't rained coming down through the moss forest, I can tell you now it is raining and we're on that hard clay and we've got one more creek crossing to go before we get into the bigger fogey. So leaving Nishimura's memorial, there's like an open grass patch and then we pretty much descend and it winds itself on it down very steep going till we get to a beautiful um, clear running stream at the bottom and then it's just a gentle uh, rise into the main village of a fogey, or what I call a fogey south. But the biggest point about this is we are now at the halfway point. We've come halfway across the Kokoda track. So, uh, is it about now you know, that people want to call in a helicopter air rescue to uh, whisk them back to Moresby? Yes, I normally say at the halfway point, Matt, that it's too far to the end. We better turn around and go back. <laughs> But yes, well, we're at the halfway point and um, it's our, our night lock and there is a wonderful um, two things I'll point out at the Fogey. You, it's a big open space, but it's in the shadow of Brigade Hill, which we've sort of touched on, but we're not going to go in right at the moment. But that's the next major battle um, in the campaign in the direction we're going. There is a wonderful museum. Again, when I say museum, we're not talking what you think a museum is on the Western Front or, or things like that. This is a collection of relics, but there is a there is nonetheless a museum at um, Afogi. And because there was, again, a high concentration of, of men and, and equipment, 
it has got some wonderful um i mean there is an australian bayonet in there which still has the leather remaining on its uh, scabbard which is just you can see the lithgow star and you can see that it's got a teardrop which um for those who know anything about the equipment the teardrop is synonymous with being manufactured in the first world war that was the design and so you can see this bayonet that's half coming out of the scabbard but it's remained pretty much intact and there's other things in there like money which was amazing the um because papua was an australian territory at that stage it had its own money but it was in in um you know you get a, a, a florin coin you get pennies and you get things that are uh, you know, for the territory, but they're in the money of the day, if you will. And there's a collection of that in there. There's even a wallet, an Australian soldier's, what's left of a leather wallet with a, a note, a paper note sticking out, some amazing uh, stuff that has survived uh, in the jungle, which you just wouldn't think of um, would have lasted 80 years. Just extraordinary stuff, David. It's been an extraordinary trek with you today across the, across the mountains. Anything more to add before we crawl into our tents after a hearty meal and uh and and get our much earned rest the only thing i would add uh to close off because again one of the parts that i love about the trek is that you have a campfire and you can sit down and have a campfire uh, yarn and where we uh, sleep that night you're in the shadow if you will of brigade hill and on the other side you're looking back towards where the wartime of foggy uh, would have been and where that Japanese lantern parade took place. So um, inevitably, that's the topic of uh, conversation. Imagining what it would have been like being one of those Australians that night dug in on Brigade Hill waiting for the Japanese to come and attack them. It's just extraordinary. It sends a chill down your spine even just thinking about it. Imagine doing it uh, in person. Imagine being back there 80 years ago and what it would have been like. But um, David, thank you so much. You are an absolute expert on this area. It's been a real privilege to to walk this ground with you in a virtual sense today and uh, i really look forward to the next episode where we're going to finish off the kokoda track and and some more um, some more fascinating chapters of history david thank you so much no worries thanks thanks for having me man deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. 
Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you would like to support the show, there's a couple of ways you can do it. Firstly, you can become a member. For a small monthly fee, you could subscribe to the show and listen to every episode ad-free and also receive exclusive episodes directly from Pete and I. So see the link in the show notes to sign up at ACAST Plus and become a member of the show. Also, if you want to make a one-off contribution, you can now buy us a coffee. Visit buymeacoffee.com forward slash battlewalks and you can make a small contribution there. See you next week.